I've told you several times we went out to Denver again this summer to visit our daughter who's at uh, Colorado Christian University and the previous summer Carrie and I had gone out to drive her there and you know do the we're dropping off our firstborn in a strange large city for the first time and on our way back last year uh, we wanted to do something we'd never done before so we decided to go through Utah and go to Arches National Park there outside of Moab well last summer if I don't know if you know there was like uh, forest fires or something and there was a lot of forest fires in Colorado. One of them just happened to be right on I-70, um, you know, halfway between Denver and Moab. And so the freeway was shut down. There was a section of the freeway that was shut down. And so we had to take a alternate route, a detour. And it wasn't like, a, oh, this is a 15-minute detour through some side streets. This is like a, this is a three-hour-plus detour uh, that goes all the way down south and around. And so... A uh, six or seven hour drive turned into like a nine or 10 hour drive. And yet we got to Moab and had fun and went to Arches. And then this last summer, we wanted to take our kids there because they'd never been. It was just beautiful. We loved it. And so we booked a couple nights in Moab. And then instead of having wildfires, though, they had mudslides because of the wildfires. So the same section of I-70 was shut down um, from mudslides, but not from um, wildfires this year, uh, so we took another detour. We decided we're going to go north this time and do a different detour, which took us another three or four hours. So, you know, six or seven hour drive turned into an 11 hour drive because there's a lot of potty stops when you have uh, little girls with you. And uh, so we went all the way to where we wanted to go, but we went out of the way. It was just very much out of the way, but we still got to our destination. We were still going in the right direction. Now, imagine if, if we were in Denver and we were getting going. I said, okay, kids, we're going to go to Utah. We're going to go to Moab. We're going to go see this great national park. And then I proceed to get on I-80 and drive to Omaha. That'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? Okay. Um, Omaha, if you don't know, is the other way. Okay, it's east. <laughs> so you don't go to Moab through Omaha. Um, it was in the wrong, it would be in the completely wrong direction. Now, I, I want you to think of that picture in your mind of, of, okay, we can go one way and we can take a detour but still get there, or we can say we're going one way and go completely the opposite as we think about this passage this morning. This is set right in the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his great teaching about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And on the whole, the Sermon on the Mount is about being a certain kind of people, Jesus wants us to be a certain kind of people. And what that means to be a certain kind of people is that we would be a certain kind of people who walk on a certain kind of way following a certain king. And so other roads that don't follow that king, other roads that, that he has not set out for us are not just detours, they're dead ends. They're, they're completely the wrong way. So I, I want you to remember as we get into this that the entire Sermon on the Mount is not just a, a set of rules that Jesus is doubling down on. You thought Moses made it hard for you. Well, I'm gonna make it even harder. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not giving us one more thing to do. He's not, he's not giving us another bar to jump over. He's not trying to make us feel ashamed like we're not measuring up. But when we remember that Jesus is giving us a vision of, a, of the good life, He's giving us a vision of what life in the kingdom is. He's showing us that rules are not rules for the sake of just having rules. 
And it might come as a surprise to you that that's not the kind of person that Jesus is. That's not the kind of God that we have that just likes to set rules so that, so that he can have rules and have control. In God's kingdom, rules are actually gracious gifts. They're, they're gracious gifts from God that are wisely given to us for our good, for our protection, for our life, and ultimately for God's glory. So when we get into this passage, we, we have to begin by asking, okay, well, what's the big deal? So Matthew chapter five, verse 27, you've heard it said, this is the second time Jesus says something like this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a, at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, now, Jesus, as I said, has already addressed the sixth commandment back in uh, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And now he moves on to the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. But, but why, why does God make such a big deal about adultery? What is the big deal? I mean, we can all understand murder, Right? In fact, every culture in the world in some way, shape, or form has rules and laws and taboos about unjustly taking the life of other people. But, but I'm not even sure it is the case that every culture in the world has the same kind of taboos about adultery. So what is it? And now, as we think about our own culture, you can hardly, you know, you can hardly even question it that we live in a culture in an age of, of pervasive sexuality, I mean, sex is everywhere, and it's everything for many people, and the moral position of our day seems to be something like, I, I heard someone put it this way, that the, the culture tells us you can do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want, just as long as you don't, what? Hurt, and no, get caught. Yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good one, okay. We'll talk later. Um, just as long as you don't hurt anybody, right? Don't hurt anybody. You can, you can do whatever you want with whomever you want, where, wherever, whenever you want. Just don't hurt anybody. Um, and the values of our day isn't, there, there's no value for faithfulness, for fidelity. There's no, there's no value uh, for self-control, but the, the values of our day seem to be desire, and authenticity. Those are the two things that we hold the highest. In other words, if you want somebody and they consent to it, it doesn't matter who it is, then you're free to do it. In fact, in order to be the most fully authentic version of you, you ought to do it. And so our culture tells us that fulfilling your desires is everything. It's everything. So if that's the case, why is adultery wrong? Now, to answer this question from God's point of view, we actually need to go back to the very beginning, to God's creation design. Genesis 1.21, the very beginning when God creates the heavens and the earth, the sixth day says that he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he created humankind from the very beginning before the fall as sexed, Creatures, male and female. 
Okay, okay that, that, that idea or that, or that piece of our biological reality isn't a biological or an evolutionary accident. This is God intentionally creating humanity as complementary sexes with all of the uh, plumbing that goes with that, right? All of that is a God-given gift to us and that is who we are as embodied creatures, And in that, God then gives, in Genesis chapter 2, a covenant of marriage, the covenantal union of one man and one woman for life. And he gives that to humanity as a hedge, as a protection around this gift of sexuality and sexual expression. So God makes us male and female for a purpose, and that purpose, at least part of that purpose, is procreation. God blessed them, he says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But he also gives us a protection around that. And it's called a covenant. And the covenant is called marriage. And so our sexed bodies, male or female, from the very beginning are essential to our flourishing in this world. And God created marriage as a, as a God-given boundary for the healthy expression and practice of human sexuality. That's how God intended it in the beginning. Now, the, the picture of God's purposes for marriage and, and the reason he takes marriage so seriously and covenant so seriously takes a deeper turn later on as we, as we walk through the Bible in the book of Exodus when God calls his people to himself out of the land of Egypt. He brings Israel and rescues them from Egypt through Moses, brings, him, brings them to himself on Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, and there he enters into covenant with this people. And he creates for himself, in a, in a sense, there a bride, a people to whom he marries. And, the, and as you read Exodus, you see all this covenantal marriage language with his people as God makes covenant, makes promises to them, and they make promises to him, and they enter into this relationship. But we know the story, don't we? We know that God brings a bride to himself, gives himself to her in a covenant of, of, of marriage, giving them the law, but then they walk in faithlessness, don't they? Over and over, Israel turns away from their God, from Yahweh, from their husband, and they go after other gods, other idols. And throughout the Old Testament, God likens this base sin of Israel called idolatry. He likens it to adultery. And Israel becomes this unfaithful wife who's always turning from her husband to other gods, And so in this story, put simply, God takes covenants seriously, which is why God takes adultery so seriously, because that marriage covenant actually mirrors God's covenant relationship with his people. And the story doesn't end there because we have this crazy text called Ephesians chapter five, which I'm going to read at length here. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. We're going to read from verses 22 to 32, but it'll be up on the screen as well. Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And I love that line at the end where Paul's just like, this is a profound mystery. Quoting Genesis chapter two, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Profound mystery. Try explaining that to, to your neighbor in two minutes, what that means. It's a profound mystery. It's, it's beyond our understanding. We can understand it in some sense, but it's beyond our understanding. And, and he says, this is a profound mystery, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so what, what Paul is saying that is, is that the fundamental reality, the deeper reality, the realist reality to which marriage points is actually Christ's relationship with his church, the relationship that God the Father had in his mind before he created the universe, that he would create this universe in order to bring forth a bride that he would present to his son called the church. And so Paul isn't saying, you know what, you guys are supposed to be in good relationship as the church together, and, and I, wanna, I want you to understand how you should uh, be in relationship with Christ, and it's kind of like marriage. He's not making like a comparison like that. No, what he's saying is that your marriages mirror this bigger reality of Christ's love for his church. Every marriage pictures Christ and his church. Every single one of them. Every marriage tells a story of Christ, his love for his bride, and his bride's loving, reverent submission to him. And every husband either reflects or fails to reflect Christ's love for his church in how they love their wife. Every wife mirrors how the true Jesus-loving church submits to and reveres Jesus through their submission and respect for her husband or her failure to do so. So why is adultery so serious? Because it does violence. It does violence to and it dishonors Christ's deep, sacrificial, self giving pure devotion to his bride, the church. Adultery, all adultery, I don't care if it's a believer or a non-believer, all adultery dishonors the name and reputation of Jesus. It says a lie about the king of the universe. So at root, this is why God takes adultery so seriously. It's a big deal. And those who would claim to follow Jesus as king, those who would claim to to follow Jesus in the kingdom way, for them, adultery should be unthinkable. 
And we can think of a of hundred pragmatic reasons why adultery might, might be wrong, and rightly so, right? It dishonors and hurts the offended spouse. That's a big deal. It treats people as objects. That's a big deal. It treats God's good gift of marriage and sexuality with contempt. It, it hurts children. It weakens society. But ultimately, what it does is that it lies about Jesus. So kingdom people are those who follow the king in the kingdom way, on the kingdom road. They're people who, who love their king who never want to dishonor him, who would never want to lie about him. They only want to serve him and bring him glory. And if this is the case, if this is the heart of a kingdom person, then adultery is not even an option for the follower of Jesus. Well, what about lust? I mean, come on. Right, we, can, we can all not commit adultery. We can do pretty good with that. But what about lust? Well, let's return to our text. You have heard it said, Jesus says, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is speaking in a cultural context in, in which most people thought or most people th would think that they've got it together sexually, that they haven't slept with their neighbor, neighbor's wife, so they count themselves as pure in God's eyes. But, but it's, it's almost like Jesus is asking, what, what good is outward conformity to a rule when the imagination and the heart has, has desired and fantasized and visualized the very act which you've technically avoided. And like the prohibition against murder, it's not simply enough that we avoid the act of adultery. We must also avoid the hidden, the, the subtle moves of the mind and the will and the heart that lead us away from our king and his good intentions for us. See, intentional lust, like Jesus pictures here, actually taking that second look, clicking on the clickbait or whatever it is, hiding away and looking at pornography, whatever it might be, intentional lust, looking in order to lust, Jesus pictures it here. He says, this is not an option for kingdom people because it's like willfully getting on the wrong train. When you know you should be going to Utah, you get on the train to Omaha. You're going the wrong way and you're doing it willfully. And Jesus says, you've already committed adultery with her, on her on your, in your heart. You've got on the train. What's, what's keeping you from going to the end of the track, to going, from going to the end of the line? You said you're going west. You're getting on a train that goes east. And for some reason, you don't see the problem. You're not at your destination yet, but where are you heading? You see, Jesus isn't just concerned with our destination, he's concerned with the direction of our lives and direction dictates our destination. He's concerned with the, the kind of people we are becoming and often we can think that our hidden sins aren't a big deal because they're not hurting anyone. They're not really affecting me. They're not really affecting my character, who I'm becoming. But this way of thinking is twisted. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Here's how he puts it in Mark chapter seven. 
He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? From within. From, and, and they, excuse me, defile a person. And when Jesus uses the word defiler, when he says they defile a person, what he's saying is that they dictate the kind of person you are becoming. They, they talk about what train you are on. Which train are you on? What road are you walking down? Because it's not people who've devotedly been following Jesus and turning from sin and fighting against lust who, when they're put in a tempting situation, accidentally fall into adultery. By the way, adultery does not happen by accident, brothers and sisters. It's not something that, oh, it just happened. It happens because a character gets formed by hidden and subtle acts of the will and the mind and the heart. You see, people who are pursuing Jesus and turning from sin and fighting to to love him, these people rarely, if ever, find themselves in situations like this because they avoid them like the plague. Rather, it's those who have nurtured and fostered lust, who look at a woman with lustful intent, who are dangerously walking into adultery. It's never an accident. It's always cultivated. And this goes for all of us. I'm not just talking to the men in the room. This goes for us men, women, young or old. One lie does not make a liar. But it sure does make the second lie a lot easier. And in the same way, one look does not make an adulterer, but it sure does make the second look easier. And the third look easier, and the fourth look easier, and what road are you on now? You, know, you see, sex is a good gift from God, but it has tremendous power to be bent and abused and vandalized. And it always offers a short-term pleasure, a reward that can then easily tempt us to fall into its traps, which then turn into patterns of addiction, which bring along with them patterns of deceit and hiddenness. And the on-ramp for that kind of choice, that kind of movement, the on-ramp to that road, especially with men, but not exclusively with men, is pornography. It's like a boarding pass on the train to destruction. It's the on-ramp to the road to adultery and it's everywhere. It's convenient, but it's deadly. And I just have to say, I mean, it's just like, okay, we gotta talk about that. Where are your eyes going? What are you looking at? Men especially, and it's so prevalent. How are you protecting yourself against it? And I would put this up then as one of two applications I would just call us to this morning. I think the scripture would call us here to flee sexual immorality in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul. When we got back from Denver, I have a, I've been a beekeeper for a few years, but I'm not a very good one because the Fay Farm is a place where animals come to die. <laughs> and um, we've lost a couple chickens this year. Um, our dog's still alive. 
so I usually, I, I have a hard time getting bees through the winter and I haven't figured it out yet. So this, this year I was like, okay, I'm gonna get another, I'm gonna try it again, get another hive. And so I've been taking care of this hive and they've been doing great. Um, and we got back from Denver and I just kind of w- out there watch, I, and that's one of my hobbies. I like to just watch bees. It's pretty fun actually. And um, I noticed something weird on the, on the hive and th- there were all these bees all over it. They were on the backside, they were underneath it, they were trying to get in in different places and I'm like, that's really odd because normally if they're the bees of that hive, they come in the front and that's it. That's just where they're at. They hang out in the front. They go in, they go out. Um, so I'm like, well, that's kind of odd that there's bees all over. And then one time Carrie and I were out there, well, this is about the same time, Carrie and I were out there, we just saw this huge, I mean, just in the air, just this huge swarm. It wasn't an actual swarm swarm, but it was just a ton of bees out front. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird too. So I went over and I just start watching the bees uh, in the front and I, and I noticed just really weird behavior. There's a bunch of them and it looks like they're really ticked. I mean, they're like you can just hear the buzzing. But then as I watched, I could see individual clumps of bees that were actually wrestling. Like they were fighting and you can watch them fight. These bees on the front, they would wrestle and wrestle and then some, like a clump of them would fall off. And, there, and I looked at the ground and there was a few of these little clumps of bees that were wrestling on the ground and some of, and there was a bunch of dead bees on the ground too, which is just not normal. I'm like, okay, we've got a robber situation here. So what is actually happening is that we had robber bees from some other hive somewhere who smelled out the honey in my hive and they were coming to get it. And they were trying to get it and they were looking for cracks and holes and crevices all over the place. And there was hundreds and thousands of them. Now, I can't just sit there and like, look, okay, that one's mine, that one's not, that one's mine. I mean, we're talking about 30, 40,000 animals here, right? So there's, there's different ways to deal with it. So the first thing that I did is I reduced the entrance. So instead of having this huge entrance that they could get into, put a little piece of wood there and it reduces the entrance down to about that big so that your hive doesn't have to defend so much territory and it's harder for the robbers to get in. So I reduced that, gave it a couple days and it was still happening. Still had all these robber bees coming and you could just see all the activity and my bees were angry and not doing well. And, uh, and so I actually took duct tape and wrapped it around every crease and crevice and, and kind of sealed everything up to, except for that one little hole to see if that would help. Next day still hadn't helped and did some more reading and researching on it. And the thing that they say to do when you have robber bees is to take a wet towel and hang it over your hive. And especially over the front of your hive, you need to leave a little bit of opening. So I did that, got a towel, got it damp and laid it over the front of the hive. And they didn't like that. Um, But what it does is it's supposed to confuse the bees from other hives to where they can't find where they were before. And then they just kind of give up and they go away. And that's exactly what happened. And so, but it's a pretty drastic kind of thing to do that. But your bees can find, my bees could find their way in behind the towel because this was home. They knew exactly where they were and where it was. And so three or four days later, I took the towel off and was watching them and there haven't been any robber bees since. No, no other behavior like that. So it was a, it was a pretty good deal. It, was a pretty, it worked pretty well. My point in, in sharing that with you is that sometimes getting back on track Getting on the right road, getting things the way that they're supposed to be takes pretty extreme measures. Now, there's a, I didn't have to go to the most extreme measures in that example, but sometimes it takes extreme measures. And I want, I want, to, I want you to listen to Jesus' picture of extreme measures here. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Has anybody ever cut their hand off? Thrown their eye away? Are you guys obeying Jesus? I still have have all my members too. Now in the history of Christianity, there have been those who have taken these words of Jesus very seriously. In fact, one church father by the name of Origen, um, he was so troubled by his desires and his temptations that he moved to actually remove the particular part of the body that he he thought was causing his sexual uh, fantasies and frustrations and desires. And you can guess what, I'm not gonna describe it, but you can guess what part of the body that was that he actually believed to be, to be at blame for his struggles. And honestly, I, I'm not quite sure that solution helped him at all. And I really don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about here, what he's asking for. You, if you remember his words on anger, Jesus made the point that we should be willing to prioritize the most important things. In that case, the most important things of reconciled relationship We should be willing to prioritize the most important things over things that are very important like the worship of God. Push pause on bringing your your sacrifice to the altar and go and make it right with your brother. There's some things that are more important than even the most important things. And Jesus is making a similar point here. To follow Jesus is a radical life that actually takes a denying of yourself, a denying of the very desires the world is calling you to indulge. And so to follow Jesus, we should be willing to be people who are willing to rid ourselves of even the most important and precious things like our right hand, the most important and precious things that we have like our eyes in order to pursue Jesus with the utmost devotion. In other words, sometimes getting off the train is the hardest thing to do, but doing so will always be rewarded, and staying on the train that's going in the wrong direction will always be deadly. So the call for us is to militantly and seriously remove the things that make you sin. We'll talk about in a minute about what that is, but militating against the, the sinful fleshly tendencies within you that war against the spirit. The Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And as a new creation in Christ with the help of the spirit of God that he's given us to indwell in us and empower us, we can fight sin and we can cut it off at the knees. That is good news. Now, for you, I don't know what this looks like, but it might, it might look like taking a break from social media for a while. I have a friend who doesn't have internet access on his phone because he's serious about avoiding temptation. For you, it might be canceling Netflix or or foregoing that movie or series that you wanted to watch because, and not watching it because of its sexual content. And not just saying, oh, it's no big deal because it is a big deal if you're serious about following Jesus. We are called, we're commanded to give up what is most precious to us because Brothers and sisters, it's better to lose those things than to lose everything. 
And the things that we value, the things that we cherish the most are often the things that capture our hearts. Like Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Bible calls these things idols. What idols do you have that you need to crucify? Because we always have an out. And it's always true with sexual sin. We always have an out. And in his faithfulness, God has promised us this very thing. First Corinthians where Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, kingdom citizens so love their king that they are willing to get rid of their most precious possessions in order to follow their king. And if you want to follow Jesus, then you want to become the kind of person for whom adultery, even even lustful intent in the mind would be unthinkable. So the question is, how will you become that person? How will you flee sexual immorality? How will you be killing sin? You have to answer that question for yourself in conversation with God. And here's the second thing I would bring just as an application that our greatest need is a new heart. Because I think Jesus' words here have a, have a secondary sense. It doesn't just mean get, get rid of the things uh, that are precious to you that cause you to sin. But also, um, let me ask you this question. Has anyone's eyes ever caused them to sin? Has anybody's hands ever caused you to sin? No. The answer is no. Your eye, your hand have never caused you to sin. None of your body parts can cause you to sin. Here's what Jesus says. We already read this. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Friends, we, we can't blame our bodies for making us sin. We can't blame our desires, our lusts, or our sin on anyone but ourselves. Man, you cannot blame your lustful thoughts on the woman that you're looking at. We can't blame them on our hormones or our bodies or our eyes or our hands. Our sin comes from our hearts. Jesus isn't saying that our hands and eyes cause us to sin and thus we should cut them off and maim ourselves. He's calling us to kill sin at its source, our heart, our inner person, our being, our will, our desires. And this is something, honestly, if you read the scriptures, this is something that we could never do on our own. It's so good that God is in the business of giving us new hearts. Knowing that his people would never follow and obey him when left to themselves, but would always turn to some peculiar form of adultery or idolatry. He went the extreme and he promised us the moon. Ezekiel chapter 36, we have this. God says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart 
And a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has done for us. Today we celebrate communion and if you're a follower of Christ and We invite you to partake this morning and remember the great good love of our King and our Savior who gave himself for us that sin might be undone. He went to the cross and was victorious over sin. Not that he sinned, but we have sinned. And he went there and in his sacrifice, in his death, in his resurrection, he has overcome sin and he has taken away the condemning power of sin and he is at work in all of us, giving us new hearts, new desires, new lives so that we could follow him and become kingdom people who love our king and the struggle is real. The fight is real, but we have a victor on our side. So the question this morning for all of us is, do you have a new heart? Only God can give you a new heart. Has God given you a new heart? If you turn to him from your sin and said, I'm on the wrong train, I need to get off. And Jesus, I want to follow you. If, that, if you haven't done that before, if that doesn't sound like your story, then... I would encourage you this morning to turn to Christ as your Savior, as your King, as your Lord, as the only one who can give you a new heart. As you come this morning to communion, we just ask you because of rising COVID cases, if you just come up and grab the elements and go back to your seat and partake of them, we're gonna uh, just give you some time musically to do that. And, uh, and then we'll close with the song. Let's pray. Our Father, we are this morning your people and we are this morning people created by you in your image as sexual beings who, we can't avoid that, that's who we are, it's who you've made us to be, male or female, man or woman. And Lord, the desires we have are not bad in themselves, but we do confess that we take those desires and we run with them and we allow them to go the wrong way and latch onto the wrong objects and even to overcome us with addiction. And, and Jesus, we need you. We need you desperately. Our world needs you desperately. Father, we desire to turn from our sin and turn to you. We desire to be on the right train and the right road. And, and Lord, we need, know that we need your help. So would you pour your grace out on us today? Would you pour your grace out on us this week and give us the strength to be killing sin, to putting, putting to death the deeds of the body, fleeing sexual immorality, Lord, and pursuing wholeheartedly our King. We love you, Jesus, and we want you to be honored in our minds and our hearts and our bodies. In your name we pray, amen.